Okay, let's make a start. Welcome everybody uh, to the uh, NEFA Coaches Corner. We're now into February already, February 2022. Where does the time go? But we've got another fantastic guest uh, to spend the next 90 minutes with us again. As always, uh, I'm joined by NEFA's Head of Academy and my co-host on the NEFA Coaches Corner, Spencer Fern. Spencer, how are you? How have you been over the last month? Yeah, good, Ryan. Busy as always at NEFA. Uh, it's yeah. been a bit, a bit, bit windy the last few days in Yorkshire, hasn't it? So I've had a few floods to deal with and what have you. But uh, the sun has been shining this afternoon in Yorkshire, so we're back on the grass tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that. But everything's good, my friends. Uh, good evening, everybody. And a warm welcome to Mark Sampson to our February Coaches Corner. Now, Mark was the head of the Swansea City Centre of Excellence before becoming manager of TAF. Wells. He then moved to the FA Women's Premier League club, Bristol Academy, who he led to a runners-up position, as well as reaching two FA Cup finals in 2011 and 2013. Now, his next role was as the England Women's National Team Manager, where he spent four years and led them to their highest placing of third place in the World Cup. He then moved on into the men's game as a first-team coach with Stevenage, was an integral part in them surviving in League Two and has recently moved on to focus on new projects. Now, Mark is also a UEFA Pro license holder and recognised within the football industry as a talented and forward-thinking coach. So we're absolutely delighted that he can join us this evening. But before we get into the many questions that we have for Mark and hopefully many from you, the audience as well, I'll hand you back over to Ryan. Yeah, quick question just to get everybody uh, going as uh, always. Mark's had obviously a wide range of experience in best known for his work in the women's game. So I've gone for the question uh, just to get all the mental juices flowing uh, today. What is the FIFA world ranking of the England's women uh, team? So whilst you're having a go at that, uh, the housekeeping, um, if you want to ask a question tonight, please type your question in the Q&A box of the Zoom menu. Uh, try to avoid putting it in the chat box. That gives it me the best chance to get through all the questions uh, tonight. Um, if you've got a general chat or a general comment of what you're hearing, please feel free to put it in the chat box. Likewise, if you want to share your LinkedIn address, your Twitter address, anything like that, the chat box is the place. Uh, to do it um we'll just give that a few more seconds few more people uh, uh having a vote uh right Spencer, did you have a little guess what do you think it is i'll go with eighth ryan oh correct correct oh, Spencer. Well, it's uh, not thrown it's, together is it it's not thrown together kind of is, but it's uh, let's share that so, oh yeah most people got it wrong um uh, interestingly, when I was researching this question, um, uh, and, and, and I guess one for Mark later, uh, the, 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 uh, North Korea, 10th in the world, 10th in the world in the women's, uh, it threw me that one, it absolutely threw me. Uh, but of course, lots of women's football on the telly at the moment with the Arnold uh, Clark Cup happening. Um, I was at the Riverside last Thursday uh, for the England versus Canada game. A tight game, two draws for England um, so far, but great to see so much women's football on the telly uh, these days as well. 
Spencer, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Well, good evening, Mark. Welcome. Hi, guys. Very kind welcome. Nice to be on. Good. Thank you. So, first one, uh, first question for you. So, prior to moving into the women's game, uh, you were the head of the Centre of Excellence at Swansea City. Uh, can you give us an overview of what kind of role you, you undertook there and what were the responsibilities? Yeah, it feels like a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> but, um, no, initially I, I went, it was my first role with a professional football club. And initially I actually went in as the under-12 coach uh, part-time and then progressed then to the under-14 coach and in the end was overseeing the, the set of actions really, probably from from 16 downwards would be the best description. The head of youth was very um, hands-on coach. And in those days, there wasn't many staff. So he, he would double up as the, the YT coach, I'd be his assistant. And then my role then was to really make sure there was some joined up thinking from the ages of four through to 16. Um, and the exciting part with that was that it was just at the time when really Swansea were going a different direction moved to new stadium, was sort of starting to implement what was called the Swansea Way at the time. So really great to be involved in those discussions on a, a club-wide level and find a way to make that relevant for, for younger players, really. And this was before EPPP, wasn't it? Because that was about 2012 that that came in. Yeah, before EPPP, EPPP which um, I think was, was a bit more fun, really, because you probably had a little more rope. Um, yeah where you could really implement some of your own ideas. And at the time, um, Roberto Martinez had actually come to the club as the manager and he was very clear on, on the way he wanted the club to develop players, what type of players he wanted, what style of play the team were going to have. And that was obviously a massive learning experience for me as a young coach to, yeah. to sit around the table with some of that calibre. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, what a special time that was. I mean, I, I imagine it was brilliant to be at the football club there and as you say this the, the Swansea way they had some great managers like Paula Sosa and of course Loudrup eventually as well that must have been really special to have been involved at the club at that time yeah 100% I mean I, I was there for the first two years Roberto was there and I think what, what the biggest learning would be his ability to make things sound very simple um, even, even though his style of play looks very complicated, very sophisticated, the way he put it across was in a very simple way, which made the coaches and the players obviously make it a lot easier for them to understand what he wanted from them. I have the opposite problem on this webinar, mate. Something very simple, <coughs> very, very complicated unnecessarily. <laughs> uh, no, brilliant. But yeah, I, I no mean, comments. I think everybody looked. Yeah, I think everybody looked at what was going on there at Swansea during those years and um, you know, it took that big shift of uh, philosophy, if you like, in terms of how the, what the approach was to really drive that change. It was it was it became kind of neutral favourites as well, didn't they? Um, you didn't stay there for, for, forever. You obviously had uh, uh, the, the move into, in, into women's football uh, happen. I mean, how did that about what was the driving factor for you because obviously at the time women's football certainly wasn't in the place that it is now yeah for sure and I think um, I think the reason for it was that in that role I'd had a taste of leadership yeah and, and really enjoyed it and felt that I'd probably been part of a process that set a lot of things up 
And the next phase of that journey was going to be really just making sure that things kept moving forward. But I felt the, the initial exciting part of devising the plan, devising the strategy, setting the vision, getting everyone to believe in it had sort of been achieved. So I, I was always, I was on the lookout really for an opportunity where I could take a lead role. And at the time I didn't really, wasn't really a big consideration for me that it was a women's or the men's game. The key opportunity that I saw was a leadership role to go into a club where you could run the program really, a club with limited history, club with limited resource at the time, but very ambitious plans. And, and something that you could probably really start to build a project with. So that was the key, the key thinking, key motivation was to, to go and lead something and go and see how your own ideas you know, would pan out. And so Taswell, so how, how long were you there, Mark? So Taswell was like in between all of it, really. So it, it was a part-time semi-professional club where I played. And I had a good affiliation to the football club. Yeah. And I mean, if I remember correctly, um, there was one season, the season where they, they played 12 and won. Um, I was at Swansea at the time and they asked me to, to sort of step in really and, and do them a favour for a short space of time which was fine because it meant I could do the scholars game in the morning and then race to wherever the game was in the afternoon yeah. as all the other coaches did. Um, and that was a really good experience. You know, managing for the first time, signing players, managing a budget, managing owners, all those type of experiences were, were brilliant really to get in my, my mid to late twenties. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And then it was here at Bristol, loads of success there as well. Two cup finals, runners up in the league. Uh, so, you know, when, when you went in there as manager, you know, was that, uh, was it established or was it more of a blank canvas when you went into Bristol at this time? I mean, there was, there was a load of good work that already gone on. They were, they were always sort of known for a club that had punched them above their weight, had a good cup tradition, um, had been that linked to either Bristol Rose or Bristol City, but have recently decided to go independent and linked with a, a sort of educational establishment, really at what at the time was called Filton College. So the, the whole concept really was that the women's game was about to move into new era. They were about to start the Women's Super League and Bristol applied. And yeah, the exciting part of that process was going through that bidding process, mm. putting a load of foundations in place to make sure that we had some sort of infrastructure to allow us to compete with teams who obviously had huge support for the men's side, the likes of of Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, you know, for us, we were self-sufficient. We were based on developing our own players and then really finding experienced players who could mainly support the young ones and, and play a part in the, not only on the field, but off the field in developing the club and the community. And I think of my time at Bristol, one of my biggest achievements is not only the results on the field, but the infrastructure the football club had, the fan base it generated. When we first arrived, we were getting gates at less than 100. And when we left, our average gate was over 1,500. And it sounds small, but yeah, yeah. Um, for a club of that size, that revenue, that, that supporter base was huge. And 
you know, by the time we left, we were, we had over 50 teams running from four-year-olds through to veterans, male, female, uh, centers of excellence, development centers, everything really geared around supporting the first team. Um, and then, to, yeah, to obviously achieve those, those feats, I still look back and I don't know, I don't know bloody how we did it. Um, but <laughs> it just shows that you, know, you get a, a group of committed people together who really believe in the vision, then you can, you can do some special stuff. And you mentioned the players as well, Mark. So did you have the players working in the community? So were they delivering, you know, coaching or, or going out to schools and stuff like that? Yeah, so obviously we couldn't, we couldn't compete with the salaries of the bigger clubs for purely football. Yeah. So obviously the bigger clubs were offering good salaries for, to make the players professional, really. Um, and the only way we could compete was to offer players some form of payment and salary for the playing side of it. Yeah. But then also we were, we were targeting players towards the end of their career, really, where we could move them towards the next step in their career, whether that be in football or in other industries. And we were really proactive with establishing partners in the, in the city, in the community with, a, with regard, again, if they were 30 at the time, the idea was they'd sign a three-year deal with us. And by the time they finished with us, if they continued, great. If not, they were already uh, on their way to a different career. Wow. Uh, and, and I enjoyed that side of it because it meant you were, you know, I thought we gave the players a real balance, a real perspective and a real sense of loyalty towards the football club. We were the same, really, with the, the youth development pathways. Our, our whole concept, really, was we could take a player from the age of four and we could bring them right the way through the first team to get their A-levels, their degree, their master's degree, and hopefully at the time they leave us, they've played 250 times at first team level and walking away with uh, incredibly highly educated. Uh, what's the situation with that club? market does it exist in the same form as when you left it or is it amalgamated into the into Bristol City now what, what what's the situation yeah so uh, after after I left it was yeah you know, for a year they did okay with a difficult time for various yeah you know, the game was was kicking on you know that model that was always going to have a shelf life really until the game became fully professional um and then it probably needed, the club needed the support then from a men's team. Um, and obviously Bristol City stepped in to support. And, and now the, you know, the women's game is a different place, really, with the, the support, the budgetary levels from the, the, the men's clubs. But there's still, I think there's a place for that, for that balance, really, to make sure that you are, you're offering, you, you provide, you're delivering a football club that is based on some form of income support from the men's side, but also finding a way to be self-sufficient. Mm, interesting. Um, Spencer mentioned there, you'd had lots of domestic success. Uh, and then obviously on the back of that, you know, England, England came and calling. Um, so uh, I want to know about how that job came about, what the call was like, how you felt. And then once you were in there into England, how did you go about building a culture within that national team squad? Well, I mean, it came about, yeah, like, like anything really in life or football, is it, timing. Um, we, we'd enjoyed three unbelievable seasons. We finished bottom in the first season. Um, and the next three seasons, we had two cup finals, qualified the Champions League twice. 
And then in 2013, just so happened that England had a difficult time in the European Championships, decided to make a change of manager, and we had a great season. You know, we, we got the FA Cup final, lost to Arsenal, and we lost to Liverpool on the last day of the season, which, which cost us the league title, um, and they became champions. And it was, a, it was a tough decision, really, because I felt we were we still had a bit more to go with Bristol. I thought, I really fancied a crack at the Champions League the next year. We'd had a go in our first year, got knocked out in Russia, and I always felt we could do all right in that competition. And, and obviously, we'd lost the league, and I felt, again, with a couple of additions and the, the team growing and evolving, the chemistry, the age of the team, the, everything around it, I felt... You know, next year could have been a special year for the club. But obviously, that type of opportunity might never come around again. So, um, yeah, I put my name in the hat. I had a great relationship with everyone at the football club, so I spoke to Mopoli and said, look, do you think it's worth me chucking my name in the hat? And I can remember when I was applying, thinking the sort of ideal situation for me is to not quite get the main job, but maybe get an under-23 job, allow me to stay at Bristol. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, the interview process went really well. It's a long, long process. In the end, there's about five interviews. Um, and then, yeah, I was offered the position. And, and, and at that point then, you you got a decision to make. But I think the decision was always going to be, uh, you, you're going to go with that one because it is the pinnacle of the women's game, work at national team level. Fantastic. And then, and then building, you'd obviously, you were, as you mentioned before, you were punching above your weight with Bristol. You were being able to get a lot out of the players that you were working with, and you developed a lot of these players within your system as, as, as well. Did you pretty much like pick up the culture that you've got in Bristol and go, I'm just going to drop that into, into England? Yeah, I wish it was that easy, really. <laughs> but no, I think as I've evolved as a, as a human being, as a coach, you, you just realise that everyone is different and different environments work in different ways and what works for one particular environment just doesn't work for another. Simple mm. as that, really. And I think the challenge in every environment I feel I've gone into with that England team in particular is, you know, initially establishing what, whatever conditions you come into, unfortunately, as a, as a head coach, there's only normally two conditions you come in. Either one, the team are doing really well and the manager's gone on to bigger and better things which is unique, or in the situation I come into where the team was probably underachieving and you're moving into a position where things aren't great, obviously. So I think the challenge is to understand that although the, the direction of the team isn't where you want it to go at the moment, there's probably been a lot of good things happening. So you can't just throw all that out. You've got to understand what, what's gone well. And then you've also got to understand really where... Where can you find a little point of difference? What can you do that can make a significant difference to improve the team? And, and normally that's nothing, nothing massive. It's normally a combination of lots of small things that make a big difference. And I think for us in that, that environment at that time, the talent was certainly there. So I don't think the, the point of difference was going to be uh, ability or, or tactical decisions. I felt the point of difference was going to be the, the culture side. And when we've, spent a lot of time on the culture piece to make sure that we created an environment which allowed the players to, to perform at the highest level and, more importantly, believe they could win at the highest level. 
what was the, the process there, Mark, in terms of finding out what the culture was like? I and mean, did you have a series of meetings? Obviously, the, the key people you met during the five interviews, but did it go further than that? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, like anything, you, you only build connections by giving people time. Um, and it was about really prioritising that, that part of the programme. I think as a, as a coach, you're always... It, you're, you're, what's the phrase? Your preference is to focus on the tactics. So if you think of an international camp, you've got a 10-day window, for example, which means you've got eight hours a day where the players are awake and alert. You've then got to work out really how do you allocate time. And I think a lot of coaches will go straight away to the grass. We'll allocate a lot of our focus on the tactical training, the technical development, the, the tactical meetings. But we made a conscious decision to, to look at it and prioritise our working week that we were going to spend a lot of time on, on building a culture, which meant that other bits have to suffer. You can't have everything. You know, otherwise you get that overload. So we, we moved the tactical side to, to one side to start with and, and spend conscious time working on how we want to be as a team, what type of environment we felt could get the best out of us, and, and, and made sure that we all understood the, the type of path and type of team we wanted to be. And was that something you like guided the process or was the players were, were heavily involved in that, you know, set, setting the culture and what they expected from each other and from, from you? I think for sure you, you've got to get the players involved. You know, ultimately it's their team. Um, and, and I think for us, my, my job as a coach, I've always felt is whether that be on the field or off it, is that encourage you to solve problems yourself, give you some real clear frameworks, which give you some good clues about where to go. And if you get stuck, tap me on the shoulder and hopefully I can, I can help you and guide you where we need to go. And that was the key really, just trying to set up a real clear framework where everyone could feel that they could be themselves, but also that you were contributing towards the team. Yeah. And, and, Ultimately, I go back to that phrase about belief. You know, I felt from the conversations we've had with the players individually, as a team collectively, and what we'd observed, we felt there was a real lack of belief, really. And that's not anyone's fault. It just was the case. I don't think there was a, a real sense that we were going to win things. Um, and and that, that's like a lot of teams, isn't it? You know, you, at the end of the day, only, not many teams win things at the end of a year even less so in national football because only one team can win something every two years. So we had to try and change that, that unconscious bias, try and change that, that thought. And, and that took a lot of conscious effort from all the staff and all the players. And, you know, in the end, we really felt the team was in a position where every game they went into, more importantly, every tournament, we felt we we're going to win it. And I think that gives you a chance then to, to be successful. And is it going about building the culture as well, Mark? So do you have any core values that underpinned, you know, the culture that you were trying to set at England? I think you've got to try and get, you know, some form of something on paper, really, haven't you? You've got to get something as much as, you know, you, I've seen many corporate cultures and visions and strategies and missions that all, I've not seen a bad one on paper, put it that way. Um, but I think what the good ones do is they... Again, they just provide you with that framework to, to really take it on to the next level and bring it to life. So for sure, we had we actually used the, the three lions, really, on, on the crest. That, you know, we had three 
areas that we felt were important to us. And underneath that, if they were our, our headings, underneath that, we had a set of behaviours, a set of values that was sort of part of being a lioness, really, and part of making sure that we were all living that culture on a daily basis, staff and players. Brilliant. Um, and, and, and also, be, being in that England dynamic, um, uh, was Dan Ashworth there at the time as technical director as well? Yeah, so Dan was the person who brought me in. Um, yeah. I think it was one of Dan's first appointments. Um, I think the reason, actually, the timing of Dan coming in probably helped me a lot, I think, because I think he was really keen to make significant change. And my appointment at the time was probably a little bit from left field. Um, so I think if he hadn't been there, him and Trevor, then I would have been given an opportunity. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an exciting time because I think, similar to Bristol really, it was at a time when the whole DNA of the organisation was changing and, and all the national coaches were playing a big part in, in figuring out, you know, again, what, what type of team do England want to be, what type of environment we want to create for the players, how can we effectively change what's historically been a team that has underperformed at major tournaments, both in the women's and, and men's game. And yeah, I think I learned a lot from that process, but also I felt I was brave enough to be the first one to initiate change, which is always tough because, you know, you're being judged. Yeah. You know, a massive success as well. I mean, third place in the World Cup, Mark. I mean, absolutely amazing achievement. I and mean, what do you say that, you know, to know one or two of the key things that really contributed to that? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the World Cup was, it probably came around too soon for us. Yeah. You know, we, we started that process early 2014, really. So we effectively had a year and a half before the first tournament, which sounds a lot, but in international football, that's probably less than 10 camps. So less than 100 days together. Yeah. So I think we had to work out how could we be competitive in that tournament and then versus or against what was the bigger vision. Um, and I think in that tournament, the key to success were, were one, the team spirit, uh, and two, really, a real, some good, honest conversations at the start of the tournament about where we were as a team. We, we weren't ready, really, to go toe-to-toe with the bigger nations. We, uh, you know, you'd love to as any team, wouldn't you? You'd love to just really go at any team you play, but but realistically, looking at the evidence, we, we weren't ready to do that, so... I think as a team, the players were brilliant in accepting that there was going to be certain times in that tournament where we had to be very good strategically, uh, very good mentally, and very good tactically to to find a way to navigate that tournament. And I think over the course of the tournament, we used 22 of the 23 players available to us, probably played every formation under the sun in any given time, just to make up make life as difficult as possible for our opponents. And, and that got us a long way in that tournament. That got us to a semi-final, very, very close to a final. Mm-hmm. And obviously then in a, a win the third and fourth um, match, which, yeah, was was great for confidence. And what I learned in that, that event was that if you can sort of create a story within the team, how powerful that is. And we, we created this story about something special was happening and look at all the evidence that is telling us that we're going to do great. And then obviously with every victory, that story gets more powerful. There's more evidence that, that fills your mind to say that maybe they're right. Maybe we could do something special. 
So it was, it was, it was a great time, really, and a massive, massive achievement. I mean, something that obviously hadn't been achieved for over 50 years at the time for an even national team. Yeah. And, um, you know, we don't want to pat you too hard on the back here, here Mark, but really that was, you know, that, 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 that moment was really the catalyst, certainly from where, uh, from where I was sitting at the time, to really all of the development that we've seen there from, really. I mean, it really did sort of capture a lot of genuine interest and commercial interest as well on the back of, of that tournament. What was it like in those moments after the tournament? Was it, I imagine it was, you know, people, I imagine it was crazy, really, in terms of people were just getting so excited for the women's game. Yeah, I think from a, probably from an England-wide perspective, really, it was, it was a big moment. It was, it was a sort of message back to SGP, the St. George's Park at the time, where, you know, well, maybe we can do things. Maybe England teams can go and compete to try and win major tournaments. And that, that started off a snowball, really, the end of the under-17s World Cup success, the 20s, the men's national team getting to semi-final. It was a real change in the... The direction of travel really for for the national teams um, and yeah getting back was i mean it was a hard tournament you know those events are they're unbelievable really the, the stress the, mm. the pressures the mm. lack of sleep the intensity the adrenaline the first thing you do when you get back is you sleep for five days mm. but um no look the players deserved it they they they'd worked their their entire lives really to be yeah given that, that platform and that recognition. Um, and certainly from there then, everyone did a great job in taking the bat and running on with it, whether that be from a football perspective, commercial perspective. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but you've obviously worked in the men's game as, as, as well. Um, you know, you took a role on at, at, at Stevenage. How do you assess uh, what are now... Um, Sort of principal differences between the women's and men's game? It's, I mean, look, it's a question I probably get quite a lot around, yeah. you know, what is the, the difference? And, you know, obviously there's some clear physical differences, like, like in any sport, you know, the, the world record for men's 100 metres is a second faster than the women's. So straight away, there's a difference in the speed of the game. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately... There's, there's not that much difference. You know, people are people. And, and especially when you're talking about high-performance sport, um, everyone who's reached that level is incredibly motivated, incredibly talented, and, and demands a lot. And, and your ability to, to manage that and bring the best out of those people and give them what they demand is, is going to be a difference between success and not. I think the only probable difference is around... You know, the men's game is, there's just a real level of scrutiny that comes around at you very, very fast. Um, you know, the women's game at club level in particular, you could probably, uh, you could probably afford to have a bad season and it wasn't really that, that you're not going to really get that much pressure from supporters um, or the board or, any, or anything like that. But in the men's game, it's, it's very, very different that those pressures can be felt very, very quickly. You know, to the point where within one game they can go from being yeah zero. Well, yeah, I I, I live up in Durham and, and Alex Neal's already under pressure at Sunderland. You know, the the, the guys had one and a half games. 
Um, yeah, it's, that's the, it, it's interesting uh, that that dynamic. Um, do you feel like that, that the women's game is sort of etching towards that as well? And obviously, lots of media coverage. And you know, is that is that is that similar environment almost an inevitability in the women's game? Yeah, it probably is. I think that's um, yeah. Ultimately, when 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 increased money comes into it and increased pressure comes into it, there's a tendency for scatter good decision making um yeah. and and i'm sure that it's probably already sneaking into the women's game but you know there's some smart people in football in the men's and the women's side and i think more and more of them now are understanding that like in any other industry you know you've got a you've got to create processes and strategies that allow for long-term sustained success and that crash bang wallop approach is it's going to be it's going to be gone. You know, it won't be long before those type of clubs get found out, and the clubs with the the strategies and the overall plans will will start to get sustained success. I think you've shown that at Bristol as well, and what you did there it was over a period of time, wasn't it? And you were given time to develop the club, uh, and obviously with the, the England side as well. And it just shows that you know if you give people time to do that, not just in sport but in business as well. You do get the product at the end of it, and uh, I'm just interested about the um, the job at Stevenage. So, how did that come about, Mark? So, I I was looking to to get into the men's game. Um, I had a few opportunities to go back at, in the women's game at national team level, but I, I just felt that wasn't the right move at that time. Um, and I think, from a bigger picture perspective, my family were based in London. Um, we had a daughter who was, who was three at the time and we didn't want to move. Um, so you're then, you're then looking at this little radius where what clubs are in that circle, which you could work for. So I'd met a few, I met a few clubs in, in that area at various levels. And Stevenage was someone who I knew the manager at the time um, or knew of him really. We met a few times, we got on well. And like anything, I think, you know, opportunity meets need. And that's exactly what happened. They needed a uh, assistant manager, a first team coach. I needed a role um, and, and, and we met. And yeah, that, that's how it came about really. And um, like any job in football, it's it's difficult, difficult industry. You know, there's, there's only 92 professional clubs. Yeah. There's only 92 managers at any given time. And there's only then that times two of first team coach or assistant managers. Mm-hmm. So you, you just need the all, all the dots to, to fall at the right place at the right time. And, and that's what happened really to open that door. Mm, interesting. Uh, it actually segues nice into a question that we've had from uh, somebody that focused one-to-one coaching. Uh, and they ask, you know, what, what was the biggest change you had to make in your coaching going from the women's game to the men's game? Mm. Um, good question. I think uh, it's going to sound a bit harsh, really, but uh, uh, probably at the level I'd been working at, the level of professionalism was 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 incredible. Really, yeah. you know, the, the players in that England team were. By the time we finished, the environment there was it was like of a like an Olympic individual high performance environment where the only mindset was to be the best in the world whether that be in your individual position or 
as a collective to win things on a national, on a global stage. And when you've got that mindset to be the best in the world at anything, everything matters, you know. And I think moving into the men's game, in, in, in although it was professional level, that was probably slightly different, you know. And that's just that's probably the nature of sport, really, um, which was a challenge but also an opportunity. But I think that was probably the biggest difference going in. Um, you know, the, the the football was was the same really in terms of, of making those decisions on the sideline, the training sessions, all that type of side of it. But I think from where I went, where I was to where I went to, that was something that I had to initially adjust to um, and, and try and find the, the right environment to suit them. But going back to the point I made at the start is that, you know, every environment is different. And I think your challenge as a coach is to work out how do you get the best at the group of people in front of you? And sometimes, what you've done before just doesn't work for that group. Mm. Stevenage as well, Mark. Was was that the season? Where, was it Macclesfield were were near the bottom and Stevenage were just a little bit above them? Was it that season? That's right. Yeah. Um, it was it was it was a, a mess of a season to be honest. Yeah. Um, I sort of went in as a first team coach, thinking if I can get sort of eighteen months under my belt to to learn the league, learn learn men's professional football. And that would be a really great experience. But then I think like 10 weeks in, the manager has moved on. And then, you know, it's a, it's a difficult cycle. And I, I sort of stepped up as caretaker for a period of time. I think it was initially going to be a few weeks, ended up being a few months. Um, it was just a season where the club never really got to grips with what they wanted to do. And I think in football, whether that be coaching with a team, or looking after a club as a, as, a, as a whole, your ability to make good decisions under pressure when the, and not panic normally defines how you come out of a rough patch. And I think in that period of time, the club made probably consecutive bad decisions because of the pressure. And ultimately, that, that comes back to body, the backside, and that's what happened. And with the with the team, and how do you keep those players motivated? So near the bottom, probably not winning a lot of games. And what kind of strategies did you have in place? Oh, it was tough as well. I think you know, again, going back to those panic decisions when pressure's on, making bad decisions. The club followed that cycle really of what normal teams who struggle do. They they panicked very early. Yeah. So towards the end of the first window, they signed a lot of players. So they had, they had initial input in terms of bringing players in to start the window. That was the plan that that was like, going to be the team moving forward. Didn't start well, panicked, signed more players. And then suddenly then you realise you've got 35, 40 players on the books. So wow. it's over budget, number one. And number two, you've got only 11 players who are happy. <laughs> and the rest are knocking on your door saying... I was brought here to play while they played. So that, that was that was a big challenge, really. And um, some of the strategies, I think, to, to use were, were really just making sure that, I think, working out that short-term versus the long-term. This is how it's got to look in the short-term to get where we want to get to before we can even think about the long-term. And that involved probably a lot of honest conversations. I've always felt, you know, that, human beings, people are people, and 
although you give them difficult news, if you can do it in an honest, upfront, empathetic way, most players I've worked with normally understand and, and might not like it, but they can they can accept it and they can work professionally within the environment. So I think that was the key, really, to, to contract with as many people as possible. And by contract, I mean, don't give many surprises. Like, look, this is where you stand. And like in my current thinking, you're not part of our plans to play on a regular basis for these reasons. Of course, it can change. But I think those conversations allowed then some form of stability and spirit within the team to, to grind out some results and get to a position where we could compete to stay in the division. It must have been uh, very, very tough with 35 to 40 pros to look after. I can imagine that. And probably the pressures from, a, from above as well, saying, hey, listen, we've got to, got to save some money here. So, uh, yeah, a tremendous challenge. But I would imagine a great learning experience for you. Yeah, for sure. I think um, look, I've always felt with a football team, is there's the sort of three key ingredients. There's, there's the team organisation, which everyone talks about, the tactics and making sure we've got a real clear framework. People talk a lot about the team spirit as well, which I believe a lot in. But I think people a lot of the time forget what I call a team chemistry, which is the, the ability for the players to you know, play in partnerships and units as a collective in a way that they can only get by playing together consistently. And when you're not winning football matches, there's a lot of pressure to make changes, which clearly affects that chemistry. So if you're right back and right midfield player, for example, a, a start and to build a relationship, then that's going to help you. But if, if you lose a game and you change one of them and lose another game, change the other, yeah. suddenly that chemistry in the team is just so mismatched. You, you can't even, you can't get it. And I think that was an important part of any team, a crucial part of any team. And well, look, there's, there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that, you know, players who play together for a long time and teams who can keep the core of the same team are normally successful yeah. in many sports, not just football. Yeah, a bit high level of chemistry or communication between them uh, and you understand the signals, don't they? Playing, you know, those positions, the right back or the right winger. Uh, yeah, very important. Ryan. So uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the first half of the webinar. As always, um, uh, we've arranged for our guests to ask you guys uh, a, a question. Uh, Mark, we, we, we discussed it before uh, we came on live. I think it's a really interesting question that you're going to ask the guys. I'll hand over to you uh, to, to, to ask the question. Well, no, it was a question I, I got asked about three months ago, really, from what, um, someone I've worked with a lot as a mentor. And at the time, I was working in a professional environment. Results weren't probably going as, as the team or the club would have liked. Uh, and he just asked me the question about that um, if on a Saturday there was no competition, i.e. there was no winner or loser, how would your coaching change? Um, so, yeah, that, that's the question I'd, I'd probably pose to everyone to think about. I think it was a, it was a really good question for me to consider and, and help me really consolidate my own philosophy and how I want to work. Fantastic. Um, so, during the break, uh, if you guys can uh, uh, give your answers to that question, I'll put it out on the chat. So, the question is, if on a Saturday there was no competition, so no win or lose, how would your own coaching change? Uh, I think it's a great question. So, if you can put the answers to that in the chat box, 
during the break. Um, uh, we'll come and, uh, and, and see what people have got to say uh, when we come back. Uh, everybody, we'll, we'll have a quick refreshment break now and then we'll be back on um, at 20 past eight. So uh, we'll see you very, very shortly. Shortly. Sure,